All right, so hopefully you've turned to Acts chapter 2. Uh, the title of this morning's sermon is The Spirit of the Church. Last week we began a new sermon series in the book of Acts that we're calling A Study of Christian Community. And what we learned last week is the Christian community is a community that's on a mission to bear witness to the truth and the power of the gospel in this world right? and the kingship of Jesus. And what God does is through the truth and power and kingship of Jesus, he uses our witness to expand Jesus' kingdom. Okay, so Jesus in Acts 1, he gives the disciples this mission. He says, this is what your mission is going to be, to bear witness to my kingdom. And so you would think he would say, all right, now go out and do it. And that's not what he says. He says, wait. Why? He says, wait for the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples sit and they wait, and they pray. Then we come to Acts 2, and Luke tells us what happens when the Holy Spirit arrives. So we're going to read that this morning from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Perga and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying they were filled with new, with new wine. All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. Let's give our attention to God's word. Uh, community is a buzzword, I feel like now. It's one of those words that you hear all the time. And there are all different types of communities, right? There's the Christian community, the rock-climbing community, the public school community, the homeschool community, the private school community, the music community, the academic community. We could go around and probably as many people as we have in this room, we could identify different types of communities. So what is the basis of those communities? What, what makes them unique? What brings them together? Well, I think communities, like friendships, are built on a common thread an interest, an activity, or a belief. Community is always about something. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this well in the book Four Loves. He says, friendship arrives when two or more discover that they have in common some insight or interest. As Emerson said, do you love me means, do you see the same truth? Or at least, do you care about the same truth? The man who agrees with us that some question, little regarded by others, is of great importance, can be our friend. That is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition for having friends 
is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to that question, do you see the same truth, would be, I don't care about the truth. I only want you to be my friend. No friendship can arise. Friendship must be about something. Even if we're only an enthusiasm for dominoes, which are awesome, or white mice, those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. And so I share that with you this morning because I want to pose the question, what makes Christian community unique? What is the foundation? What is the, 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 the beliefs, the practices that form Christian community? Among other things, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, as we look at this passage, I want you to see that it's the Holy Spirit that gives life to Christian community, that purifies Christian community, and that unites Christian community. The Holy Spirit gives life, purifies, and unifies Christian community. Uh, kids, I want you to listen to a story about a football coach. Listen for a story about a football coach. Okay? Uh, if you're not, uh, I'm going to say this in advance. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, I'm sorry, because <laughs> you're about to get like a fire hydrant of Old Testament references. But there's really no other way I can explain this passage other than using them. If you don't, if you don't understand the significance of, of the Old Testament, you won't understand the significance of this passage. So here we go. First thing we see is the Holy Spirit gives life. Verse 2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is often described as a wind. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same word for spirit is used for breath and wind. We see this at the very beginning, Genesis 1, verse, uh, Genesis 1, 2. It describes the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. It is like a bird flapping its wings, and it's whipping this formless creation into something. Uh, later on in the prophets, in Ezekiel 37, it describes the Spirit bringing life to a valley of dry bones. In John 3, Jesus talks about the Spirit as a wind that blows wherever it pleases and brings spiritual life. So now we come to Acts 2, and we see the Spirit coming, and what does it say it comes as? It comes like a mighty rushing wind. This, this wind signifies the Spirit coming to bring life. So that's what the Spirit does. It brings life to Christian community. Because apart from the Spirit, there's not life, there's death. You see, God was created, or man was created for a relationship with God. He was created to be united with God in the Spirit. But when sin entered the world, it separated that relationship. And the Bible says that man, apart from God, is spiritually dead. Now, man is still made in the image of God. He still has the dignity and value and honor of, of, of being in God's image. And God generally still preserves us and keeps us alive by his spirit. But there's no experience of the blessings of God. There's no spiritual awakeness without the spirit. Without the spirit, we're, we're spiritual corpses in need of life. So what does it, it feel like? What does spiritual death feel like? It feels like emptiness. Uh, years ago, there was a New York Times article published. Uh, we published an interview with Tim Allen Tim Allen, Home Improvement, Santa Claus, 
uh, you know, lots of stuff like that. It was really popular in the 90s. Kids, if you don't know about it, talk to your parents. They can explain it. But Tim Allen, in a 12-month period, starred in a number one movie, had the number one TV show, and wrote a best-selling book all in one year. And he was doing an interview with the New York Times, and they interviewed him, and they asked him about how he felt during this time and unprecedented success. And he said, you know what I feel? I feel despair. He said, I read an article about despair in the New York Times a few weeks ago, and I read it and said, that's exactly how I feel. My life feels empty. Spiritual death feels like emptiness. It's a tank that's empty. It's a corpse without breath. And what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit comes in and it brings life. Now, that li- what does that life look like? Well, it doesn't look like a shot of electricity pulsing through your body so that you're pulsating and gyrating uncontrollably. That's not what the Bible describes as the fruit of the Spirit. What does the Bible say is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. That's what it looks like to have spiritual life. You love and you live like Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit wants to give you spiritual life. He wants to fill your tank. He wants to breathe life into you so that you experience the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what it looks like to be united to Christ and filled with the Spirit, and that's what Christian community looks like. That's the first thing we see is the Holy Spirit gives life. But the second thing we see is that the Holy Spirit purifies. Look at verse 3. It says, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So again, Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, the fire symbolizes God's presence. When God came to Moses in the burning bush, how did he come? As fire. When God led Israel out of Egypt in a pillar of smoke and fire. When God met the Israelites on Mount Sinai, he came down like a fire. When John the Baptist was preparing the people for Jesus, he said, I baptize you with water, but one who come after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. All through the Bible, fire, especially the Old Testament, symbolizes God's presence. And so we come to Pentecost, and what does it say? It says the Holy Spirit came like a fire to rest on the disciples at Pentecost. Now, you need to know that when they saw this fire initially, they would have been scared out of their minds. Because to them, fire meant judgment. Fire meant that, that, that God was coming in anger and wrath and fury. They had, they had heard stories about fire consuming offerings. And so they would have been frightened. But what happens when the fire comes? What does it do? It rests on them. It doesn't consume them. It doesn't burn them. It doesn't destroy them. It rests on them. And they actually become filled with the Spirit. 
they become temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why didn't the fire consume them at that point? Why didn't, it, why didn't it burn them? When Luke 12, the same Luke that wrote Acts, he quotes Jesus as saying that Jesus came to bring a fire down on earth. And then he starts talking about his baptism. Why would Jesus talk about judgment and fire and his baptism at the same time? That's because he wasn't talking about his water baptism. He was talking about his baptism on the cross. On the cross, he bore the judgment of God for our sins. So that when the Holy Spirit came into us, it did not consume us or burn us up. It filled us with life-giving power and purified us. See, that's what makes Christian community unique is that the Holy Spirit comes into us and it purifies us because of the personal work of Jesus. So most communities focus almost exclusively on love. They want to be a loving, welcoming, accepting community. They want to take people however they come. And then you have other communities that focus mostly on justice and the law. And they, they build their whole community around observing the laws and principles and rules. And there's always this tension in these communities between that they, they, they want to have love, but then there's no justice. So they want to have justice, but then there's no love. And what makes the Christian community different is because of what Jesus did on the cross. Both the love of God and the justice of God were satisfied through Jesus. You see these Old Testament, these Christians here, that when they heard about God in the Old Testament, he, the Lord, God, told them, I am, this is who I am. I am the Lord who is gracious and merciful, showing steadfast love to thousands. But I'm also the Lord who, will, uh, who cannot and will not forgive sin. And so all through the Old Testament, you see them wrestling with how could he be a God of love and how could he be a God of justice? And here we see it all come together in Jesus, that he is a God of love and justice and it's satisfied in Christ. And it's through Christ that we become purified. And that Holy Spirit rests on us, it fills us and it purifies us. It cleanses us from our sins. So that when God, we come into God's presence, we're not consumed, we're cleansed, and we're filled. It's this spirit-purifying power that makes Christian community unique. And it allows us, on the one hand, to be honest about our sin, to look at the law and say, yes, I have fallen short of the law. And it allows us to experience the love of God and say, yeah, because of Christ, I am loved and accepted. And I can love and accept others because they're going to fall short. And because I've fallen short and Christ has paid for me and, they're, and I'm forgiven, I can forgive them. Because God's been gracious to me, I can be gracious to them. And so it builds a community that pursues purity. So we have to ask ourselves, are we encouraging ourselves, is this community, are we encouraging ourselves towards purity, towards holiness. We can do that because of Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of it. The second thing that this does is it purifies our work. We don't have to fear God. We don't have to come into his, fear coming into his presence now, and we don't have to fear coming to his presence in the future. Uh, Peter talks about how there's going to come a day when a fire will come, and it's going to purify all of our work. 
And everything that's done in Christ will remain, and everything that's not done in Christ will be separated and judged. And that could be a a really fearful thing to imagine. But, But because of the work of the Spirit now, what God is doing is he's purifying us now. He's sanctifying us now. He's purifying our work now. So the things that are stripped away are things that won't remain on the final day. Uh, years ago, there was a football coach who, you know, he, he, he led his team to great victories. He won championships. And then after the game, he talked about how he, he went out to go greet his family after, you know, doing everything in the locker room and coming out. He came out to greet his family, to see them. And when he came out, there were thousands and thousands of fans still there to cheer him on. And it was the pinnacle of his career. It was the pinnacle of his work. This whole community of people that were there to celebrate what he had done with his team. Well, of course, you know what happens. Years later, the losses start piling up. The team is not as good. And then one year, they miss a bowl game. And he comes out after the last game when they've lost the game and they're not going to go to a bowl game. He comes out to see his family and there is not a single other person there to see him. It is just his family. Everybody else has been stripped away. He walks up to his wife, and his wife looks at him and says, we were the only people here all along. The Holy Spirit may strip away things from your life. There are things that you don't need, that you don't want, that aren't going to last. And what's going to remain is the things that are done in Christ that will last. The things that are really there, the community, the people, the activities that are really there. So that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit purifies. And then lastly, the Spirit unifies. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we all have read this passage a thousand times and we find ourselves agreeing with the people in the passage going, what does this mean? What is happening here? And what's the modern day relevance for us? Well, let me, uh, let me kind of give you a little bit of, of context here before we go into what's going on. First, I think it's important to understand that in one sense, the, the events that happen at Pentecost are unrepeatable. Like at no point in salvation history, had this happened, and at no point since then has this sort of event occurred, right? This is an unrepeatable event. Jesus only uh, lived, died, and ascended into heaven once. And the coming of the Spirit here here fulfills the final act of Jesus' earthly ministry. That can only happen one time. It's unrepeatable, okay? Also what's unrepeatable is the ministry of the apostles, Right? Uh, Pentecost fulfilled Jesus' promises to the apostles that he made before he died. And it equipped them to serve for a unique ministry that founded the early church. There are no more apostles that, that, that saw Jesus from his baptism until his ascension. That office can't exist anymore. And they served as the primary witnesses for the church in this new spirit age. So from that perspective... The apostles' ministry can't be repeated, and the day of Pentecost can't be repeated. So that's the first thing we got to understand. Because the second thing about this is that, um, right? The, so you've got to imagine, 
okay? In Pentecost, Jews are coming from all over the place that speak in different languages. They had been scattered all over the region. And so they were all Jews, but they all spoke different languages. So they all come to worship uh, during this feast called Pentecost. So what happens is the Holy Spirit supernaturally comes on this group of disciples, and they begin speaking in other languages of the people from the surrounding area. And the people, of course, they begin to hear what's going on. They hear the wind, they hear the languages, they hear the praising God, all these things. And they come, and when they listen to them, they say, wait, these are Galileans. These are peasants. They've never learned these languages before. How are they speaking in our language? I'm I'm hearing them in my language right now. I know these people. I know they don't speak this language. They were astonished that they were speaking a known language that they had not learned. And what were they doing? They were praising the mighty works of God. Now, you would think, okay, have we seen prophets, apostles, people like this do this sort of thing before in Scripture? Actually, we have. In, uh, in the Old Testament, Moses, when he is trying to save God's people from Egypt, he does all these plagues in Egypt. And what does the text call them? Signs and wonders. And then you have the prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, and they are trying to bring salvation to God's people. And they do all these miracles. What are they? They're signs and they're wonders. And then you have Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus, who is God, fully God, fully man, begins to do all these miracles. And what does John call them? Signs of his Messiahship. And now we have the apostles who are doing these signs and wonders and speaking these other tongues. Right? So we have to ask ourselves, what is God doing? Well, these signs and wonders, they're authenticating the message of the gospel. They're they're, they're showing, yes, these are true prophets with true power from God, and you need to listen to them. You need to hear the message of salvation that they're sharing. From that perspective, I don't think this is a continuing event that takes place in the life of the church today. Our our tradition, our denomination, our church doesn't believe that this sort of act here is something that continues over and over and over again. We believe that it ceased with the age of the apostles. They had a unique uh, place in church history where these signs authenticated their message and helped spread the message of the gospel. Now, there are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that this still takes place today. And I would say if it does... It would take place in these same circumstances where it would be on a mission field with someone supernaturally speaking in known languages. And I've actually prayed for that before. I went to Cuba to share the gospel with people. I even baptized somebody in in Cuba. And as I was preparing to preach the gospel to these people in Cuba, I couldn't remember any of the Spanish that I learned in Miss Reynoso's Spanish class. And so I prayed. I was like, Lord, if this is the time for me to speak in tongues, go ahead. Here it is do it. And he didn't. But there was a translator there that helped me. And everything that I preached, the translator shared with the people and they heard the gospel. Okay. So I said that tongue in cheek, but I'm just saying, I think what is, (laughs) what's the most important part of this passage? So we get all caught up on the tongues. What's going on with the tongues? We actually miss the most important part of what's happening here. Okay. And to understand that, you've got to understand yet another Old Testament story, okay? Think back to the Old Testament. 
early, early on in Genesis, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, everybody spoke the same language. And they all came together speaking the same language, not to glorify God and expand his kingdom, but to build a tower to heaven, to build their own name, to glorify themselves. And God looked at this and said, this is dangerous and destructive. And what did he do? He confused their languages. He scattered them all over the face of the earth because it wasn't good for them to try to glorify themselves and try to build their own kingdom. Fast forward now to Acts. What's happening? A total reversal of the Tower of Babel. The scattered people are gathered. Language that was a division of God's people, that barrier has been broken. And are they glorifying themselves? No, they're glorifying God. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. It's the Holy Spirit bringing unity to the church. That's what we see through the book of Acts. That's what we see throughout history. That the Christian gospel has brought rich and poor, different languages, different cultures, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. It's brought them all together to be one people in Christ. Paul tells us in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave or free, but all are one in him. That is what the Spirit has come to do. It's important for us to remember that because that means the community we have in here with our brothers and sisters in Christ supersedes all of our other communities. I heard a story once about a distinguished seminary professor who grew up going to all the best schools and, 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 and was a leader in his seminary and was like really elite and one night he was driving to party to, to a, a celebration, a party, with some of his elite academic friends who were not Christians. And on the way there, he heard this fire and brimstone preacher on the radio, and he started to sneer at him and started to mock him. He just thought, this guy, fire and brimstone preacher, like, oh, I can't, can't believe, you know, he's such a, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And the Holy Spirit began to work on him, and he began to think about this preacher and the people that he was going to see. And it occurred to him that he had more in common because of the the spirit with this fire and brimstone preacher than he had with these social elites that he was about to go party with. That the unity of the spirit was stronger than the unity of his degrees. That's what the spirit does, is it unifies us. I I saw this in RUF. Um, I saw the Lord bring this together in a really mighty way. our, Our job in RUF is to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. And and we did that by providing a loving gospel community. And one of the things that we always prayed is that we reach all different types of students on campus. And we prayed that for years and years, and we tried to build that kind of community. And then one night when I got up to preach, I looked out in the audience, and there was a lot of Caucasian students, but there was a few African-American students, and there was a few Hispanic-American students, and we even had Asian-American students. What was happening? The Holy Spirit was unifying us in Christ. I wish I could say our group always looked like that. It didn't. It did that night, and there were like little foretastes of it. But that's what we hoped for, and that's what we prayed for. And I think that foretaste that I got that night, and then we get here, is actually at the heart of Pentecost. I want to close with this. I could go on and on. I actually had to break this sermon up into two sermons because there's so much here. But... But see, what you guys see is Pentecost. Pentecost was a day they were already celebrating. 
Pentecost in the Old Testament, Penta means 50. It was the 50th day after the Passover. So the Passover celebrated their salvation from Egypt, and then 50 days later, they would have Pentecost, where they would celebrate what God did. But, but they, they, were, they were not just celebrating God, bringing them out of Egypt and giving them the law and meeting them on Mount Sinai. They were also celebrating the harvest. It's when the crops would come in, and they would bring the first fruits of the crops and they would eat from the first fruits. They would celebrate the first fruits. It wasn't the full crop, but it was the first fruits. Now, we don't live in an agrarian society. What does it look like to have the first fruits? Well, it looks like uh, baking cookies. And you get, the, you get the batter all whipped up, and you put some cookies in the, in the sheet, but then what do you do? You lick the bowl. You get the first fruits, right? It's like uh, watching a trailer for a new movie, right? New movie's coming out. You want to go see it. You can't see the whole thing, but what do you do? You watch the trailer, you get the first fruits, right? It's like a, a single coming out for an album. Can't get the whole album yet, but you can get a single. It's the first fruits. What we have here is the first fruits of the great salvation that God is bringing together in his people. It's not the full thing, but it's the first fruits. What we have here in Christian community, here at the church, is not the full thing yet, it's the first fruits. And I would, I, would, I would say that, that all of our other communities, whether it's the CrossFit community or the homeschool community or the uh, book club community, whatever it is, whatever is true and lovely and good about those things is the first fruit of what we're going to experience in heaven. Something much, much greater. Um, Charlie and I were actually talking about the, this week. He got to go to the Michael Buble concert. And at one point in the concert... Michael Buble is singing, love is for the way you look at me. I wasn't planning on doing that, right? They're, they're, he starts singing that, and it brings all these different people together, and everybody's doing the hand motion. It's L-O-V-E, and everybody's celebrating. And it was you had thousands of people joined together, unified by singing this song. That's the first fruit of what we're going to be doing in heaven when we praise and worship God. But here is the real thing. We come together, right? As we proclaim the mighty works of the Lord, we get in the first fruits of that. So let's pray that the Spirit would fill us, unify us, and unite us. Let's pray together.